Audio Conversation with Jason Horsley, recorded March 24th, 2012. Now, I first heard about Jason through his other incarnation. Uh, he went by a pseudonym, Aeolus Cephas, uh, for a while. And under that pseudonym, he had a podcast series titled Stormy Weather. I've included a link to this series on the show notes, and I recommend it highly. Uh, he is very thoughtful, soft-spoken, and, and introspective. Now, he's a, a very different voice uh, from pretty much anyone else in this realm. Uh, and I say that because there's a certain like f- intensity to him. And also, um, he doesn't shy away from any sort of self-examination. He's kind of fiercely honest in his own introspective scrutiny. And, and that's something that leaves me impressed. Now, he is also an author, and he has written a handful of books. I have read only one of them at this point. It is a book titled The Lucid View, and it came out, I think, in 2001. Um, I can recommend this book highly. Uh, it is kind of a intellectual set of investigations into the subtle realms. Um, the title of the book is The Lucid View. The subtitle is Investigations into Occultism, Ufology, and Paranoid Awareness, and this is under his pseudonym, Aeolus Cephas. I will link to this book on the show notes. And uh, he also wrote another book that intrigues me greatly, titled The Secret Life of Movies, and the subtitle is Schizophrenic and Shamanic Journeys in American Cinema, and he writes that under his given name, which is Jason Horsley. Uh, we don't talk about this book at all during the interview, but it is something I want to follow up on. Knowing what I know about his insights and his temperaments and the avenues of thought he goes down, uh, this this book intrigues me greatly. And one thing we do talk about at great length is an essay he wrote recently titled, Through a Fractured Glass Darkly. And the subhead is, The Facts and Strange Case of Whitley Strieber. And this is published under his pseudonym, Aeolus Cephas. Uh, this is a 39-page report or essay that he wrote where he looks into the, the collective work of Whitley Strieber as well as his uh, personality. Well, let me, I'll say his perceived personality. It's hard to know someone's personality just from what you've gleaned off of the internet or, or through some written work. I found this essay very interesting. And um, it arrived to me in two incarnations. The first incarnation, which basically makes up the first half of this essay, was written in 2008. And it was Mac Tonys who turned me on to this essay. He said, you know, you should read this essay. It's about Whitley. It's really, you know, this guy really did his homework. He really looks into Whitley's work in a way that I've I've never read before. And uh, coming from Mac, I... I uh, respected that, and I sought it out, and um, it was interesting, and I remember reading it at the time, thinking it was fascinating. From that essay, I found out about his online presence, his his uh, podcast series, and uh, got totally hooked onto that, and, that, and then uh, recently, he updated this essay, more than doubled its length, and, and now this longer version 
really gets much more introspective. And when I say introspective, partially it is a study of Jason himself, or Aeolus Cephas himself, and it turns into his own uh, self-examination in a way, which I curiously found fascinating. Now, I can't speak to the overall conclusions of this essay because it's a little bit murky. It doesn't really come to any conclusion, like any sort of forceful conclusion. What it does say is that there are many levels to look at both Whitley Strieber and the work of Whitley Strieber. Um, I do not agree with some of the points he made, though I did find this essay extremely thoughtful in ways that might be hard to properly articulate. And, And I'm being purposely cautious here because I am quite fond of Whitley, and I look to his work as a sort of um, compass-bearing, trying to make sense of my own set of experiences. So, I know this must sound a little bit wishy-washy, but what I guess I'm trying to do is remain a little bit neutral, because I find that Whitley is an exceptional writer and an exceptional thinker, and I would also consider Jason to be very much in that same boat. Uh, He writes and thinks at a very high level, and it takes a little bit of work for me to keep up with him. And and I was a little bit nervous about doing this interview with him precisely because of that. And I mentioned that, I think, more than once in the interview. Now, I would like to share one short little story here. And this is about uh, when I met Whitley for the first time. This is a conference that took place in Tempe, Arizona. And this would have been November of 2007. And the conference was put on by a fellow named Chet Snow, and it had other speakers there, including William Henry and Jim Mars and Linda Moulton Howe. Um, so somewhat of a UFO conference, somewhat of a, you know, just looking into paranormal issues as well as crop circles. Now, in 2008, I was very fragile. I had only just started to look into my own set of experiences, and it really shook me up. Well, let me just say I was not in a good headspace. So while at this conference, uh, I was remember there was a hotel there, and I was walking through the hotel bar at the end of the day, and there, sitting at a table all alone, looking a little bit lonely, actually, was Jim Mars, easily recognizable guy. And uh, and I kind of walked up to him, and I said, Hello, my name is Mike. I just wanted to say that I've read a bunch of your books, and I respect your work greatly. And um, I asked if I could join him. And he kind of laughed, and in his uh, you know beautiful Texas accent, he said, uh, you know, if you buy me a beer, you can sit right down. So I went up to the bar, bought him a beer, turned around, and sat with him. And as soon as I sat down, I was joined by Whitley Strieber, his wife Anne, and a couple of other people. Um, and I didn't realize that, that Jim was waiting for Whitley to arrive. Uh, so there I was, at a very shaky point in my life, uh, at a table with uh, Whitley, his wife, and Jim Mars. I was nervous, not so much about their presence, but I was just, I was nervous all the time at that point in my life. Um, And I was mostly quiet. It was very interesting for me just to sit and listen to the conversations. And at one point, Whitley pulled out his wallet, uh, pulled out a small photograph, and showed a few people and, and handed it over to me. And it was a photograph of his son, Andrew, and a newborn child. And I didn't really realize it, but Whitley had become a grandfather, and he was showing me a picture of his new grandson. This was 
really emotional for me. Now, I, I, I had read a bunch of his books, and Whitley had a place in my mind as an icon, as a sort of mythic figure. But, but that all melted away, and who I was seated next to was a very real person. And that uh, was an interesting lesson. Uh, very simple, uh, at the same time very heartfelt. I was sitting next to a very real person who was showing me very proudly uh, a picture of his newborn grandson. So since that point, I look at Whitley and his work differently. I, I feel like I gained a new, or let's say a different appreciation for Whitley and his work. And, and it was with that newer insight that I read the essay uh, written by Aeolus Cephas, also known as Jason Horsley. Now, in this interview you're just about to listen to, we do cover a lot more topics. One of the things we also talk about is uh, the deeply human filter process that takes place while examining any kind of uh, deep subject. And and we also tie a lot of this back to uh, a sort of evolution of consciousness that is also interwoven with this UFO phenomena. And this is where I think Jason really shines as he wrestles with these really grand concepts and grand ideas. I did my best to keep up. This interview is just a little bit less than an hour and 40 minutes long. Please enjoy. Jason, I just want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. It was nice, nicely timed at my end. Good, good. There is a, a core set of subjects that I've been uh, immersing myself in. One of them, you know, is obviously the UFO abduction lore and the, the UFO experience itself. And um, I read your book, The Lucid View, when it came out. And um, I, I just wanted to ask you about your views about this. And I guess I can frame this in a way where I just got back from a UFO conference and uh, you interact with people all the time. All the discussion is about UFOs. You jump from one person to another. And um, as I've been swallowed up in this topic over the last bunch of years, you very quickly become aware that absolutely everyone has a different take on this subject, and absolutely everyone is somehow seeing or trying to analyze the experience through their own particular filter. Mm -hmm. And I just was wondered if you had any comments on that. Well, the uh, lucid view that you mentioned, which uh, came out in 2001 or 2002 or 2003, actually, I can't even keep track of the dates here, but it was something I worked on for quite a few years, and it, it's not exclusively about uh, uf ufology, as you know, um, if you've read it, and nor is it based particularly on my experiences of that uh, paradigm, if you will, although I have had some. What it was was, um, and the subtitle of the book was Investigations into Occultism, ufology and paranoid awareness and part of what I wanted to do with that book which relates to your question was to put ufology as I call it into a larger context that of paranoid awareness and occultism and belief systems in general mythology how we create belief systems and how belief systems shape our 
experience of reality. So then I saw and continue to see to some extent the UFO, and I use that term in a very sort of wide sense. I don't mean an unidentified flying object. I just mean the whole phenomena that's being experienced and interpreted and written about and talked about. The UFO like as an entity or as a as an experience, uh, I see it as like a tipping point in, I suppose, I don't want to get too highfalutin right out the gate, but an evolutionary, an evolution of consciousness that seems to be occurring like in the species, that is very highfalutin, I know, but that um, it's like the UFO is, is the ultimate unknown, like apart from God. It's like it's almost like a bridge between this mundane reality and what we think of if we're religious or spiritual as the divine reality, which doesn't necessarily mean that UFO itself is divine or positive, just that it's a kind of bridge for perception uh, by which we're accessing another reality. So what interested me... Uh, in writing the book was how, and what you're talking about, I think, is how rare it is for people who experience UFOs and who are investigating and who are interested in it to to put them into a larger context of spirituality and occultism and psychology, mythology, philosophy, uh, I mean, all of the larger disciplines, if you will, and, and, and look, look at it through that lens, as it were. Um, I mean, I'd read very little like occult works, very rarely referenced UFOs or alien abductions, and to some extent vice versa. There was a couple of exceptions with John Keel, for example, but generally people who were into ufology went into occultism. And to me, that they were two sides of, well, not a coin because there's many sides, but they were two facets of a, a larger prism, if you will, that were very close together. I mean, really like close enough that they overlapped I felt and continue to, to feel well um, fear not about being uh, too highfalutin or anything like that because uh, this, the evolution of consciousness is is uh, exactly where the avenues I like to go down as far as this kind of speculating um, I would have conversations with a friend of mine we would have these Sunday morning conversations and he was quite a meditator and had all kinds of um, books on Buddhism and and our conversations would get really deep and um, he would confront me periodically He's, he would just kind of say my god I can't believe you don't meditate and my response to him was like my god I can't believe you don't read UFO books mm-hmm. um, because there's something about the UFO phenomena as a as a, as a whole, that um, it doesn't take long in a conversation where you immediately are forced to address these ultimate questions. You know, who am I? You know, what is God? You know, what is the meaning of, of reality? Uh, you know, these things are, are intertwined with the UFO lore. Right, which relates to what I was trying to express there, was that it's, and what I've said in the past, is that the UFO has a you know, as a total phenomenon, which, as you you know, if you look into it enough, you find that no single interpretation or map of the experience fits the territory. There's no, none of the explanations actually cover all of the facts or the perceptions, not not the nuts and bolts, not the, the, the spiritual or psychological one, that it's some sort of projection of the soul, not the 
uh, you know, discarnate demonic entities, and uh, not the well, the psyops is nuts and bolts one, I suppose. But then there's the the ET hypothesis, and then there's the intelligence operation hypothesis, which certainly doesn't cover all the facts and so on. And and so it's only by First of all, putting all of those together, all the different maps together and seeing if you can superimpose them and get this larger map. But then even that doesn't work, in my experience and my attempts, um, because it, this is something that, and I had this conversation with Doug Lane, I don't know how much it, it came out on the actual podcast, but when we were chatting about it initially, that the UFO doesn't fit inside this reality tunnel that we're in. So it, it's closer to, excuse me, let me just stop that. It's closer to a um, crack in this reality tunnel by which we're having an opportunity or an invitation to glimpse outside of our reality tunnel, which, of course, is a terrifying prospect. So very few people are able to actually look at that um, anomaly long enough. It's a bit like, I suppose, seeing something in a dream that is doesn't belong in the dream and if you focus on it long enough you start to become lucid and realize that you're dreaming and then the rest of the dream would fall away and only that object that you were initially captured your attention would remain and then you would actually be awake in the dream or whatever would happen at that point something like that which is sort of what what i commented to you on facebook which to be honest, I was kind of hoping that there was a bit of a carrot that I threw that I was hoping would intrigue you enough to to, to invite me to an interview. So somewhat conscious there. Um, the, the comment that I made about the UFO, and it just came to me while we were chatting. It's not something I'd already formulated, but the UFO being like a crack of light uh, glimpsed from the inside of the womb. So, as it were, from the, 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 the vagina, like opening, uh, seen from the inside, from the point of view of the fetus, and the light that comes through that opening, uh, inviting and really announcing to the fetus that it's time to emerge. That would be a, a poetic and but maybe, who knows, more literal than we can even imagine uh, to interpretation of a larger interpretation of what the UFO actually might be. And, I mean, obviously, the birth canal is a metaphor for pain also. I mean, the, the, the experience of the of the child being forced through this tiny, tiny opening into this, this realm where it is suddenly helpless is a perfect metaphor. And that actually gets used often in the, you know, when people try to wrestle with these grander subjects that are related to the UFO lore, um, you know, the birth canal, as well as another metaphor that comes up often is is the caterpillar and the butterfly a similar rebirth process takes place um you know Mm -hmm. and and somehow there's a metamorphosis in there where you are vaulted into a um a transformational higher evolutionary status i mean the evolutionary of uh, the evolution of consciousness is is how you started this whole thing off and that i don't know i i if we were to speculate i suspect we'd still have you know, ten fingers and ten toes in this in this higher realm, but something profound feels like it is it is attempting to take place in this in this uh, mythology that is surrounding the UFO experience. And I and I you know I just watched two thousand and one the other night, and I'm 
I am just thunderstruck at the at the poetic magnificence of that film. Um, yeah, just mm. just just leaves me awestruck still. Having and that seen it has the uh, giant fetus at the end. Yeah, the, there's the image of the the child reborn. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that you didn't mention there is the, and it's, it has been commented on frequently, is the similarity of the of the classic abduction experience with the birth experience. So, lying on the table, surrounded by these strange figures with the glaring eyes and being probed and pulled and poked, uh, and. I don't know if you remember on an early Stormy Weather uh, podcast, Carrie McCoy, who I was chatting with, uh, suggested that maybe these entities or this conscious energy that's uh, interacting with us, because its 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 uh, goal is to birth us as consciousness into a new state of being, maybe it's imitating our birth experiences, it goes into our memory banks and says, okay, this is what birth is like to these beings, so let's do our best to copy that model so they'll get what's going on here. As well as, you know, the UFO abduction lore is full of images of tiny babies in incubation chambers, um, you know, fetuses floating in liquid and women being subjected to you know, forced pregnancies that are then taken away from them. So, yeah, right. the the image of the, you know, the child as well as the hybrid, you know, the, this this conjoining of them and us, uh, which there's very little, uh, how to say, physical evidence of that. There's lots of anecdotal evidence of it in that this evidence is, is fleeting. At the same time, it is intensely bizarre, the stories that are emerging of people who tell of meeting these hybrids they are you know basically right. dysfunctional they can't you know they're, they're not quite us and they're not quite them and and they can't uh they're so different from us that it it's um you know i wonder whether this is literally happening are there hybrids walking among us are there hybrid children on a in a grand nursery on some mothership way out you know behind the dark side of the moon or is there um some sort of theater being played and we are being presented with these grand uh, metaphoric concepts as a way to, to sort of force us into rethinking our present mm-hmm. uh, you know, timeline at our present, you know, the way we're traveling towards, you know, what seems like oblivion. Well, I would definitely go with the theater interpretation and more than or less than theater in the a very different sort of theatre, in that it's, there's audience participation. So the theatre, as with the birth analogy, is being generated by this aspect of consciousness that we're, is alien to us, but that is perhaps essential to us as well as part of our, our greater nature. This this living consciousness, evolutionary consciousness, is um, generating a form of theatre or living dream using the elements of our own unconscious and conscious, the collective unconscious and, to some extent, our conscious minds also. So it's like we're co-weaving this living dream, which the purpose of which, paradoxically, is actually to awaken us from the dream. And this is what I was trying to get at with Lucid View, my description of it, is that the nature of these experiences, or the meaning of them, is that reality is not what we think it is. Uh, reality actually isn't 
what we're perceiving at all. We're not in reality. I mean, we are in a greater sense because by definition, you can't get away from reality, right? It's always going to be there. But in terms of our actual direct perceptual experience, we're not experiencing or perceiving reality. So when this greater part of our soul or our psyche, if you will, of of our life force begins to uh, interact with us and sort of break through the filters of our, our ego mind and our, our delusional or hallucinatory reality tunnels. Um, the the temptation, and it's instinctive, I think, is to <clears throat> actually try and get that experience to fit with the reality, the, the illusory reality and the map that we're functioning with in order not to wake up. Basically, so like you have a dream, you hear the alarm clock, you don't want to wake up, so then you dream that it's a fog horn and you're on a boat, and then next thing you know, you've managed to sustain the dream and block out the sound of the alarm clock. You can't block it out completely because there it is right next to your head ringing away. So the way that we block it out is we incorporate it into the elements of the dream, and then we carry on dreaming. And so this is what I think you're describing there with the whole hybrid thing, the whole UFO thing. And I think that's part of the fascination of it in a sense is that it's so outlandish, it's so unreal, and yet it does seem to have this uh, somewhat illusory but potential to become concrete reality. That was part of its fascination for me, um, was that to believe in all these fantastic scenarios of hybrid hybridization programs and secret government this that and the jitter reticulums and the reptilians and all of that stuff that most of your listeners are familiar with i'm sure uh, transformed my sense of reality and made it so much richer and more exciting and dramatic and my whole life and my role uh, that much more interesting like i was living in a movie but i think that that's actually um the wrong direction to take it in. None of this is happening because, uh, you know, we're not like the story that we're living uh, isn't is is just a sort of waking dream. So that I mean, yeah, yeah, that, I, that, I see where you're coming ahead. from. Um, but at the same time, in this waking dream, I mean, obviously you stub your toe and it hurts. You know, you fall in love and you you are awash in emotion. You know, there's very real seductive qualities to this reality. And um, mm-hmm. one of the things I've done recently is made a very real effort to reach out and talk to these people who claim the abduction experience. Now, I have been extremely cautious to avoid using the term abduction when describing my own set of experiences. There's, there are other people who will jump right in and, and tell me that's what happened to me, but I um, have had a handful of experiences uh, that leave me so perplexed, and they certainly have the flavor of what gets reported in other people's abduction experiences, but um, I just don't like the vocabulary word, so I just don't like to, to, to go down that avenue. Um, mm-hmm. That said, I you know when you talk to people, they will share stories from such a heartfelt, real place that it it adds to the, 
I guess the dynamism to the drama. Um, you know, it's just it's it's interesting. It feels like if you could go back to ancient Greece, you know, you could talk to a you know an intellectual in a in a some library, and he could sort of you know tell you about all the amazing scrolls he has that tells of the stories of the gods and the mythologies, and 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 he would be quite a learned character to to interact with. But at the same time, I would much rather you know, talk to the person who just walked down from Mount Olympus with a crazed look in his eye, you know, who has just actually communed with the gods, you know, that, that to me would be the much more uh, delicious story to follow. Well, sure. But then, you know, contact with these entities, as I cover some of my piece on Whitley Strieber, and also when I wrote about Castaneda, um, it can be deranging in itself. So there's a sort of dilemma there isn't it because the more uh, authentically somebody has encountered this other reality the more likely they are to have been unhinged by that experience and so in a sense the more reliable their uh, testimony is the less reliable it is exactly and, and, and in a funny way that's to me that's where the fun is you know that's where i'm drawn to now some of my experiences now have uh, presented themselves and the only way I can describe them is magical. And in using that term, I realize there's folks in among the UFO research community who's, who would cringe in their boots. You know, I'd say like, you know, I had this experience, it was magical. It was just magical. And they don't want to hear that. That is a vocabulary word that they uh, want to dismiss. And, and, you know, they'll jump back in and say, no, no, you're misreading the events, you know, what you're, what you're experiencing was some sort of alien technology that's higher than ours, and that's all it is. It's just alien technology. You have to put it in that box. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I recognize the filter that they're, you know, running their own logic centers through, um, but I like that word. I trust that word. I think that there is something magical in this, and, and mm -hmm. something... Uh, it has the flavor of as silly as it sounds, you know, that John Williams' musics, you know, will, will sort of well up in the background of your say, own experience. the Spielberg connotations. Yeah. And I guess I might have some reservations about the word because of that. Um, I use the word in Lucy View quite a bit, I, I think. Um, and I certainly talk about magical thinking. And, you know, magical thinking has the psychological definition, which is basically, you know, irrational thinking and sort of infantile thinking. Um, but I use it, I have used it in the past in a very different way, which is thinking outside the box, thinking magically. Um, means uh, squaring the circle or um, just finding new ways to perceive seemingly old and familiar realities and experience. And I think, um, because my, the word magical shares the root with imagination. And then, of course, there's that word imaginal, which I use in this view, which is getting around a lot more these days. Um, and I was talking with somebody about this recently, like the difference between the imaginary and the imaginal, first of all, which is that uh, the imaginal is actually a realm that's outside of um, our senses, outside of direct experience for most of us. Um, a bit like Plato's realm of ideal forms, I guess. Uh, the astral realms, etc. The spirit realms where the dead are and apparently where these seeming alien abductions are sourced in. So that's the imaginal. And then, of course, the imaginary is, is just a world 
uh, or experience that we generate in our heads through fantasy. Um, but as children, and this relates to Whitley Strieber's thing because he, you know, he had these very early experiences as a child and possibly of you know government uh, interference and trauma-based mind control and the rest of it. Um, but even without that, as children, we we have this capacity to uh, experience contact with other realms. I think you know with the subtle realms, with the imaginal realms. Um, and presumably before we even develop the power of the imagination, but then we experience traumas, and all of us do, with or without you know government intervention or, or extreme abuse, where we all experience some sort of trauma as children, even if it's you know starting with the birth trauma. So I think that we learn to use the imagination um, as a way to escape our reality and and or use our access to the imaginal realms to escape reality. So children have imaginary friends. Well, are they totally imaginary or are they imaginal or are they a bit of both? You know, my guess is there's a bit of both. That As children, we do have access to other realms and those realms are inhabited. So we're able to contact and seek comfort and maybe guidance from these other beings. Um, but because of the trauma and because we're trying to escape our reality, we um, begin to generate, and we do this as adults, of course, when we fall in love particularly, but in general, we generate a sort of fantasy relationship with the other being. So then that's somewhat of an abuse of the imagination, but we learn it, I think, right at the start, when we start to use the imagination not to... Uh, gain access to and have a dialogue with the imaginal, you know, with the with these subtler realms, but simply to escape this realm, then we're no longer. Then we're sort of creating these maps that are out of sync with with the genuine experience. I'm hoping this is somehow coming back to what you were talking about because I feel like I've gone off on. No, the no, the, the conversations have a way they they wander yeah. all over the place like that. Yeah, no, this makes perfect sense. In what it, what you're doing, in a way, is paraphrasing somewhat um, how you ended your essay on Whitley Strieber, and that was part of the reason I wanted to talk to you was this this essay which um, I read in its original incarnation. Um, which took place back in 2008. But presently, that essay is titled, um, the essay is titled, uh, Through a Fractured Glass Darkly, The Facts in the Strange Case of Whitley Strieber. And it has just been updated. I mean, the version I have is dated 2011. And I was really impressed with the essay in its first incarnation, and it was Mac Tony's who turned me on to it. We had a late-night phone conversation, and he kind of said, like, oh, you know what you need to do? You need to read this really great essay. Um, this author goes by the name of Aeolus Cephas, and he was really impressed with it. And he said, you know, wow, this guy really did his homework. This guy really studied Whitley's work, and he was writing from a very real place of questioning and... um the present essay is kind of divided into two halves. The first part is what was originally published in 2008, and then there's a, uh, the second half would be your updated ideas and views. And then your summation is almost like the parable that matches everyone's human experience that can somehow be 
superimposed onto Whitley's experience, although his experience is using, you know, much grander plot elements, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, um, I mean, that seems to be what storytellers do, isn't it? And where myths come from is that somebody with a gift for that takes uh, these archetypal elements and arranges them in such a way that they do um, reflect and resonate with everybody's experience. Yeah, and I don't think this has necessarily been uh, observed about Whitley or about Castaneda for that matter. There seems to be this question always, you know, is it real or isn't it real? And people get lost in that. Or is he a, you know, government shill or is he not? Or is he insane? You know, all these questions. And they're not, I mean, yeah, they're relevant, but they're definitely not the only way to approach it. Something like this. And for me, what's what's more rewarding in the end, because, I mean, in the end, the question I had to ask myself was, why do I have this enduring fascination bordering on obsession with uh, Whitley Strieber? And so in the end, I had to bring it back to myself. I had to say, well, wait a minute. Look, there's some sort of resonance here with my own psyche and my own experience and my own search for meaning uh, that has drawn me repeatedly to this man and to his work, despite the conflict I experienced, despite, despite the uncertainty and the distrust, despite the failed attempts to actually have a dialogue with him and the frustration of that, despite all of that, there's this deeper uh, subtext, which is really the context of the whole experience, which is that uh, somehow I found in his experiences and to some some extent him himself uh, a mirror for my own that I wasn't able to see it in myself when I looked at my own life I wasn't able to see it when I looked at Whitley's I could I could see okay it's it's bigged up it's magnified so now I can see uh, and so yeah, so by psychoanalyzing Whitley I'm actually psychoanalyzing myself and vice versa it's like a blood sample I use Whitley as a blood sample it's a collective condition and then because brings that brings it back to the UFO experience the alien abduction experience being a collective thing that's occurring, I would say not to the species even, but but in the species, like in the consciousness of the species, this is happening, it's emerging. But it's coming, uh, to go out on a limb here, I'd say it's coming from the inside out, um, but we're experiencing it from the outside in, and that's where we've got it, the whole thing upside down, to some extent. Now, I've been following Whitley closely uh, for over 20 years now, um, I had read uh, War Day before Communion, and um, uh, I have a couple of odd little experiences in my life that sort of uh, are intertwined with Whitley in a way. Um, I've been on his audio program in some form or another, whether it's on his uh, Dreamland show or on the one that's for subscribers only, um, three times, which boggles my mind, and I didn't expect that. And uh, and I just had breakfast with him a few weeks ago at a UFO conference. Um, so I feel like I know him a little bit, an acquaintance, I would say. And, uh, you know, in person, he is a very genial, smart, serious fellow. And I have a very strong liking of his, oh, how to say this, he wrestles with really grand ideas. He does not take the experience lightly. He doesn't treat it as something superficial. He doesn't anthropomorphize the experience 
in a way that is simplistic. You know, you can look at all kinds of parts of his, oh, his his personal story and what he may say, but that almost falls away because he has, since the publication of Communion, been wrestling with these ideas at such a at such a high level that I that I'm left uh, using him as a as a sort of reality check from from my own set of experiences because because he just simply aims so high and it allows me as a reader and a listener to wrap my mind around something you know more profound than I dare uh, you know I, I don't want to go down the avenues of of this being so profound but he is going down those avenues uh, okay so you've you know written what I consider a very strong essay about Whitley Strieber you've you've pointed out um, some pr- deep things that I've never seen written before you know how does this this is this is complicated because you you actually write at such a deep level you're such a strong thinker that i i was a little bit intimidated about this interview just because i knew it would force me to to really go for it so i guess that's what i'm gonna have to do here yeah he um he's playing a role right now in in my life anyway and it sounds like in your life and what would that role be well i think it's very different right in the role he's playing in your life and mine and i mean I think that, yeah, I was wondering if you would ever have me on your show and whether we would talk about Whitley. And because I wanted to make comments here and there at your blog and whatnot about Whitley, but I've restrained or about your perception of Whitley. Um, Because we do have very different perceptions. And what we have in common, besides obviously we're interested by him, is an affection for him and a respect for the depth of some of his thought. But you've read my piece, so you know that I have a very... um, well, a uh, cautious view of Whitley. I mean, that's putting it mildly, isn't it? I, I basically called him a cult leader in a sense. I mean, I don't, I hopefully I didn't use that term outright because it's a very easy term. But what, what you've just described, the role that he plays in your life, um, is something that I try to identify uh, as a danger in what Whitley's doing in, in my piece, which is that he is... Uh, an ambassador, let's say, for uh, I don't know about other beings, but other realms of experience. He does seem to be on the front line of a particular kind of experience, and he's a writer, which is perhaps why he was chosen to to, to be this ambassador, uh, to have this role. And so what he's doing by writing and talking about his experiences is he's bringing back reports from the other side, so to speak, to help people, as you've said for yourself, to come to grips with their experiences. But and that's all well and good. But the danger and the downside of that is based on what I think our conversation is is about today, and hopefully we can keep coming back to this, is that this experience isn't what it seems to be, and it actually can't ever be interpreted or understood through the lens of the ego or the personal self or within the context or using the maps that we have so far for our reality, not even if you bring in quantum mechanics and Gurdjieff and all the stuff that Whitley throws in there. Um, it's still not uh, sufficient. It's still just his interpretation of reality, but because he's such a strong voice, and this is, you know, I'm aware that, as a writer, I also have this responsibility and I run this risk. Um, because Whitley has such a strong voice, the danger is is that 
people, perhaps yourself included, myself included, um, do turn him into an authority, allow him to be an authority in our lives, in our minds, in terms of how we approach and how we interact with this experience, which essentially is our own unconscious. I mean, everything that is unknown in this reality and in our lives that we are beginning to interact with is sourced in our unconscious, which isn't to say it's not real, but that the unconscious um, is inseparable from like the dark side of matter, from the hidden aspect of existence, including you know the divine, the spiritual realms of being. All of that isn't contained with the un- within the unconscious, but um, it is it overlaps with experiences that we have had. Uh, and that our unconscious, such as our dreams, such as our very early past, our childhood, um, and so on. So I think that they're sort of inextricably bound up together, like our own unconscious life uh, and these other realms that we're at least reporting on. So to try and really narrow this down to what I'm trying to say here, that Whitley is really only reporting one man's experience and one man's interpretation. That's all it can ever be. But from what I've seen, he does get on the soapbox and he does make the mistake of believing and encouraging or allowing others to believe that his interpretation is universal. So then that gives him authority. He becomes a spokesman for the greys and he's pretty much come out and said that. Uh, And people with a tendency to take this more literally than it needs to be taken. And we all have the tendency to disown our own power and responsibility for grappling with these realities, which I think you were sort of trying to express a moment ago. Uh, those people are are going to happily and gratefully give that power to Whitley. And in the process, they're relinquishing their own power and in, in, even their own imperative to face this emerging new reality alone and and decide themselves what it is now you know i can see the way i can see the reasons you're going down this this avenue of thought i have been to uh, one of his conferences he runs a series of conferences once a year and he did one in the west coast in um near joshua tree i think that would have been 2009 yeah and i went to that and um I didn't get the sense of, of like the cult leader thing at all. I, it, it was much more, uh, you know, the people who attended, it was actually quite small. Uh, it was not expensive uh, compared to some conferences. And um, the people who attended, I thought were genuinely questioning things. And I thought were genuinely there to interact with, you know, people with the same set of experiences. Quite honestly, the majority of the people in the that attended, I feel strongly either would have told stories of alien abduction in their lives, uh, and I certainly talked to a lot of people who had those direct stories, or they would have had uh, some similar sort of uh, profound life experience. And they were there in a very deep place of questioning, and I think they enjoyed the camaraderie. And And I don't want to go too far beyond that. So I, I see where you're coming from, and you make very good points, but um, from you know, my direct experience of attending the conferences, I wouldn't put the emphasis as strongly as you do. No, I, I could see that. And I would defer to some extent to your direct experience because I haven't had that. My 
impressions are based on his website, his you know his audios, and just all of the you know the stuff that he puts out on the internet. I don't I haven't met Willie, haven't even spoken to him over Skype. Um, I've barely had email interaction with him, and I certainly haven't atten- attended any of these things. And I did you know, qualify my use of the term cult leader. Um, sometimes I exaggerate just to clarify, make it clear, and not spend too long, you know, describing what I mean. So it's a shorthand, and the danger with shorthand is it's a buzzword, and it has all these associations. Of course, I don't mean he's a cult leader like Jim Jones. I mean he's a cult leader in the way that I felt that I was in danger of becoming a cult leader. Um, I think any writer uh, who is successful, particularly if he's a non-fiction writer, and particularly if he or she is writing non-fictional accounts of imaginal, spiritual truths, perceptions, um, those elements combined uh, mean that that person is likely to fall into the niche of a minor sort of cult leader and the more popular they become the more that's likely to be because of what I tried to describe there which is human nature it's human nature for us to want to refer to outside authorities experts and the more unknown and strange and unfamiliar and threatening an experience is the more we're going to do that that's why millions of people go to church every week because they're afraid of going to hell. You know, they want somebody to tell them what to do and what to believe so they won't go to hell. I mean, to put it really, obviously, I'm, you know, again, oversimplifying just to make it as clear as I can make it. That tendency in us as, as human beings is, is incredibly strong. Yes, and you, you must be familiar with Dr. Stephen Greer. I don't think I am, no. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is interesting. Dr. Stephen Greer, is he's written a handful of books. He is uh, presented something in 2001 called The Disclosure Project. Uh, it would have been the spring of 2001, and he went to the um, National Press Club in Washington and had a bunch of quite credible witnesses stand on stage and say, you know, like I was an Air Force pilot and this is what I saw and I will be willing to go before Congress and testify. And it was one person after another, each giving uh, credible testimony. He was uh, hooked up with uh, Edgar Mitchell, the NASA astronaut who walked on the moon. And um, maybe... Or maybe oh, not. that's right. Yes, <laughs> who claims to have? Who is? Yeah, he's yes. Yeah. So the so uh, now I am usually very cordial with my opinions, but um, I have no problem at all speaking out about Dr. Stephen Greer. I do not trust him. I think he is a wannabe cult leader. I sat through his presentation, and he made claims that were absurdly wild. He said that the secret government came to him and offered him $2 billion to join their ranks, and he could still go about his research and his workings, but he had to shy away from certain subjects. And And I found that a little hard to believe. Um, you know, $2 billion, is that's that's a number that I just am reminded of that scene in in uh, Austin Powers where uh, Doctor Evil, you know, <laughs> says, mm-hmm. you know, you know, one hundred billion dollars. It's it had that same uh, flair of cloying drama. 
I sat through his presentation. You know, he gesticulates wildly. He says things that I'm quite certain cannot be backed up. Um, he is always alluding to these people who he's talked to who he can't reveal their names. And he just goes on and on and on. His claims just get wilder and wilder and wilder. He, he, he runs a uh, service where you pay him money. You go to a a place at night with laser pointers and he will call in the ufos now i have no doubt that uh you know with with great intention you could have quite profound results with a group of people all all very focused on the same outcome you could get some very curious anomalous lights in the skies that that might qualify as ufos but upon showing the videos which are little dots in the sky you know and he's saying you know these are you know like these are the time warping beam ships that are that are vectoring in from another dimension and what you're seeing is a little dot in the sky that's moving uh we through some sort of um uh like infrared night vision camera and uh, and it, it kind of made me i was kind of revolted let me put it that way and uh mm. now he he's a guy that is you know does fall into that category of of uh he's more than a wannabe cult leader he is you know aggressively uh, grooming himself with his giant ego to be that. So it was very interesting to see Whitley's presentation side by side with his presentation. And Whitley, you know, came across as a person who was just trying to keep the debate, you know, moving forward. Uh, well, but you can always compare, well, you know, both ways, can't you? Because if you find an extreme enough, obviously, if you compare, uh, you know, anyone to Adolf Hitler, they're going to look good. But then if you compare in the other <laughs> way, it's going to look bad. If we put Jesus on the other uh, you know, scale, or what have you, uh, end of the scale. And uh, there are a lot of people in my experience posting at Rigorous Intuition, Jeff Wells's site, uh, over the years about Whitley. was always very interesting because it's the opposite of talking to you or to people uh, I don't know that many people actually people who are interested in, in Whitley and, and uh, support his work um, <clears throat> at, at rigorous intuition that the general consensus was more or less how you experienced this Greer fella that's how most people over there seem to perceive Whitley um, yeah. you know and I couldn't well obviously I couldn't agree with them but at the same time I uh, and I don't always respect people's opinions. I'm not one of those people who thinks you should respect everybody's beliefs just because you know, they have a right to believe it. I'm, I'm not that way at all. I think most beliefs need to be disrespected. But uh, in this case, um, I had to kind of respect their opinions because I really could see what they were talking about. Because to me, and this is what's interesting about Willie, unlike this Greer guy it seems that you're describing, who's just all bad, let's say, um, it, Whitley really does have both both sides, and I think he is genuinely conflicted, and that he's that makes him very human to me. And that if it wasn't for that, I'd probably be less interested in, in him and less drawn to him. But you know, my um, what I describe in this piece, and I don't know, it's been a few months, and I refrained from submitting it until just yesterday as it happened. I submitted it to Reality Sandwich because I wasn't sure about you know the sort of effects the piece would have um i lost my thread there i was going to say something um well i can i can just follow up and say that you know i sure. i enjoyed your piece greatly as i was reading it i was sort of playing in my mind you know like wow what if whitley read this and i and i don't want to put 
uh, try to guess what he would say, but I suspect he would be annoyed. Well, he, he has read it. I sent you his oh, comment. Oh, he did? He, so he read the whole thing? Yeah. Well, I don't know that, but I sent it to him, and then he he responded with the comment about how he didn't think I would ever really be able to satisfy my curiosity about him, which I thought was a fairly apropos comment. Um, and he wasn't, as you know, um, back in 2008, his response to the first piece was, was quite hostile, quite dismissive, even to the point of suggesting that it was disinformation. And that was, that was very disappointing to me because um, nothing could be further from the truth. And I, I attempted to uh, address that in this update. I think I even mentioned that particular fact. Um, and what I was going to say before I lost my thread was that... Um, what I argue in the piece, what I suggest, is that Whitley himself is unaware of the effects that he's having and some of the forces or the uh, things within him, you know, the psychological factors that are driving him. And of course, that's true of all of us. Um, it's just that when somebody has a large following and when somebody is a spokesman for non-human, otherworldly, imaginal beings, take your pick, then those uh, areas of the unconscious become far more uh, dynamic, far more important, really, to, to identify, because that's um, you know what somebody's unconscious motivations are. Um, they're going to actually become manifest in effects, uh, results that that person isn't conscious of. And that's how I think that... Um, any spiritual spokesperson or magical or whatever you want to say Whitley is, um, spokesperson does have a tendency to get turned into some sort of, quote, cult leader, unquote, you know, with all the sort of negative associations we have uh, uh, with that term. Now, this is so interesting because when I, I did an interview online with Whitley where I spoke about my friendship with the late Mac Tonys, who I had never met, but I had uh, many late night conversations that would just go on for hours and hours where we would talk about, you know, exactly that what we, you and I are talking about right now. And it was in one of those conversations where, where I first heard about that essay, uh, which is now the first half of this updated essay. And Mac had, a, a, you know, quite an adversarial relationship well, not relationship. He he, you know, was very outspoken of his views, and his views, when you read them, do come across as pretty mean spirited. Um, and at the same time, he was a huge fan of of Whitley Strieber's. Um, he said that uh, the book Majestic was the only book he had ever read twice, and um, he had read everything in print that that Whitley had done, including you know these sort of obscure collections of short stories and and such. Um, so. It was an odd relationship, and, and Whitley was uh, aware of Mac's writings, and um, and he brought me on the show uh, partially because over the years when, well, it would have only been a couple of years, I had uh, corresponded with Whitley and said that you should have Mac Tonys as a guest, and he would always sort of say, ah, oh, you know, he was polite about it and said, I don't think so, and mm -hmm. then... Um, after Mac's death, and I think after reading the book The Crypto Terrestrials, Whitley realized that Mac was, you know, quite a profound thinker on these subjects, and he brought me on to talk about him posthumously. And I was a little bit shocked that the initial part of the interview, which is something I was willing to address, 
uh, you know, Whitley just came right on and then read a quote from one of Mac Tony's uh, sort of editorials where he, you know, kind of, you know, hit Whitley pretty hard with some mean-spirited, uh, oh, reviews of how Whitley had been presenting himself on, on his website. And, um, and it was a little upsetting to me that, that Mac could be so mean about it. Cause that really wasn't in Mac's nature. And I think it was more just, um, the, the voice of youth sort of mm-hmm. rebelling against, against an elder, a father figure, yeah. Um, sure, yeah. sure. Uh, you know, whether it's a father figure or or someone, you know, that's in essence doing the same thing he's doing, because Mac was writing about, you know, these kind of UFO phenomena as well as other esoteric phenomena, and and uh, I guess he was holding Whitley to a very high standard. Well, I, look, sorry to interrupt, but it relates to the what I was saying about the authority as well, isn't it? Because Whitley's an authority figure in that field, and and so uh, that was Mac's field. And so, yeah, that that is like a, a, a father-son dynamic. And so, if Mac was seeing that Whitley, or perceiving that Whitley was abusing his authority in some way, then that that would account for some of the the edge behind his criticisms, perhaps. Absolutely, sure. That's a, that's a, a a way to you know you're putting on your psychiatrist hat and and making that 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 claim which i think is valid um, i don't ever take it off by the way mike so it's, okay. it's, my, it's my hair really i can't <laughs> but um so one of the things that mac and i did talk about i went on and on and on sorry about that I, one of the things that mac and i did talk about is that in the public's eye that works against whitley is that he is such a good writer and yeah. um and one of the things he does which i will speak to now is is for instance, he has these little things on Wednesday evening where he'll talk online with uh, subscribers. It's a little chat thing, and sometimes I'll I'll chime in. It's a little bit frenetic because there's you know 30 people you know on there, and then in one Whitley. And oh. uh, but what he will do is he'll respond to to people's queries and questions. But he responds in such a poetic way. He he like writes these little responses and talks about issues with such a haunting eloquence they they almost come across as these uh mystical zen koans and i and i suspect he just isn't trying to do that i suspect that's just the way stuff emerges from him at times and um in i can see how that works against him in the eyes of you know people trying to size him up why would that work against him because it comes across as so ethereal rather than sort of deeply pragmatic mm. and i and i think we want someone who's deeply pragmatic as as opposed to someone who seems to have one foot in this this other realm right well don't you find that what he's writing not to maybe get too sidetracked here but <clears throat> is is very inconsistent because i agree that some of his stuff is excellent I mean, really you know, top notch not just in the field but in any kind of anything that i've read uh but then there's other things i've read of his that i think are quite poor and even sort of both coexist coexisting like the greys i thought was rather poor as a novel but i thought it had some very good possible information in there or just descriptions 
You know, I, I don't know how to answer that, um, but I do recognize exactly what you're saying. I found some of his fiction, um, you know, didn't I didn't uh, think it was up to the standards of some of his other work, um, and I and I think that the one piece of work that he did that leaves me absolutely thunderstruck is the key. Right. And at the time, I had been reading that came out in 2000 or 2001 or something. And at the time, in the late 90s, I had been completely immersing myself in uh, channeled books, you know, that were often written in this question and answer format. And when I read The Key, I was like, oh my gosh, this reads exactly like all these channeled books I have on my shelf. Um, I think I asked him that in one of the ch- online chats on Wednesday night, and he said, oh, no, 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 you know, it's like, you know, this was a real dialogue. I was, you know, but um, the key ends with, you know, the master of the key, you know, this this man who he who he said if an actor was to play him, it would be Jeffrey Rush, uh, the British actor, um, which which was I'm helpful sure he's for He's over six foot tall, Jeffrey Rush. Oh, they would have to use some computer-generated <laughs> thing to make him small, I think so. Uh, so, um you know, that may have just been, you know, a reaction to just a quick question. But, uh, you know, the, the whole dialogue ends, you know, this dialogue that I thought was, I mean, how to say this? I mean, it reminded me of the, these channeled stories where there's this flavor sometimes to these channeled books and also to the key where you mm-hmm. realize, like, this, this author might not have been capable of coming up with these ideas himself. These ideas are coming from somewhere else. And that's the, that's maybe naive on my part to think that, that uh, you know, a good writer like Whitley couldn't come up with these ideas, but that's the way I interpreted it as I was reading it. And I think I've read it more than three times at this point. But, you know, the entire thing ends with the master of the key basically saying, oh, here, drink this, and then gives him, like, a little bottle of, like, some odd liquid, and Whitley drinks it, and the next thing he knows, he's waking up the next morning. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought that was a, such a strange punchline to that to that whole narrative. Like, if it was an actual fiction writer, I would have, you know, I would have written it differently, the exit scene. Mm. Well, the writers are tricksters. I mean, writing is, even if you're writing supposedly non-fiction, it's, it's fiction. You're inventing because you're choosing what to emphasize and you're spinning it through your own perceptions. I mean, of course, we're all, like whoever it was said, Nietzsche, we're all greater artists than we know. And so we, we all rewrite reality every moment of every day, which is something I hope we can get back to if we have time, just that, that sort of overarching subject. But in terms of Whitley... As a writer, he 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 is. Um, manipulating is a very loaded word. He's shaping uh, facts, information, memories, experience, perception, philosophies, ideas. He's shaping it all into a product. And so, once it actually is a product, then it it is a fiction, regardless of how much he wants to insist that it's real, because people are questioning it. So it's a very 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 blurry line, and particularly with encounters with the imaginal beings which the master of the key as described by Whitley would have to come under you know the bracket of imaginal beings even if he does have a driver's license and an address somewhere in Canada we don't know um, but he definitely had the whiff of another reality so and Whitley himself said you know to had his his wife and never let him think that he'd dreamt the experience so even Willie really has some sort of doubts about that or knew that he would have or so really I mean I don't know I mean obviously I don't know that that goes without saying but 
to me that the, the key does have the flavor of channel stuff and and my sense about Whitley is that he is a channel and that's that's been um a large part of my confusion and difficulty with Whitley is that I expect the source of my wisdom to be consistently wise, which of course isn't true of a channel. A channel simply gets in a place like a medium and becomes the voice piece, the mouthpiece for this uh, knowledge, this wisdom that's coming from somewhere else or deep, deep inside that person. But the rest of the time, they're an ordinary Joe and you know you can't expect them to consistently have this level of intelligence or awareness. And that's my sense with Whitley is that most of the time when I hear him talking and a lot of the time when I read his posts and his journals and whatnot, I think, well, that's I'm not really all that impressed. And so then I find it difficult to reconcile that with when I really, really am impressed. And I think, you know, this is, wow, he's the only person who's actually saying this. You know, where is he getting this stuff from? Um, and so I find that that's an inconsistency to me, that somebody who would have um, communicated all that he did with the key was still voting Republican, you know, was still voting, period, don't mind which way he's voting, uh, that has, I can't think of any good examples offhand, I think some of them are in my article, but that has these very sort of ordinary pedestrian kind of points of view, uh, that that always seemed to undermine, to some extent, uh, the wisdom that he was communicating because he didn't seem to be embodying it, didn't seem to actually be living it. Now, that, I'm aware that Whitley's listening to this, that seems like a personal criticism of him, and I don't want to criticize him personally. It's not my business. I just mean that for me, that means I trust him less as a source, as all. Because I don't trust a channel. I wouldn't trust a channel, really. Because, you know, the information may be really good, but it's still getting filtered through the channel. And so it's getting, it's like, it doesn't matter how pure the water is, if it's coming through a rusty pipe, you don't want to drink it. And then at the same time, I think that sometimes you're thirsty and you're going to drink anyway. Right. Um, and and that may describe me more because I'm I'm on my own journey where I'm uh you know part of the reason I do this audio program and I say this to pretty much every single time I do these shows uh is it is my own personal therapy I'm doing these programs for absolutely selfish reasons I'm trying to make sense of my own set of experiences and it is through these dialogues that I can more effectively try to shape what may or may not have happened in my life, uh, in my own mind. And, and I use Whitley, he is someone I turn to, to try to make sense of, of things that are very complicated. And uh, yes, you know, I agree, sure, you know, he's, he's, sometimes he's all over the map as far as, you know, he'll say thing and it's one thing, and then a few years later, you'll read another post and he'll contradict himself. And sometimes he'll even say as much. He said, you know, like, I'm, you know, I may have said this before, but now I'm saying this now. And I have, very little problem with that um, because you do the same thing in a way. You keep the debate, you keep the level of questioning at a very high level. And I think that is more important than the nuances of the personality. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get 
too uh, sucked into talking about Whitley and, and well, we can move on and if you, yeah so. I definitely don't want to end up criticizing Whitley to you and um, let's if, if you want let's bring it back to the what I said was the overarching theme and this is yeah this is the overarching my overarching criticism of Whitley too or of anyone of any of us starting with myself um, which is the filter the idea of the filter and the um, you know, our, our experiences are always colored by our past. So the, the, the analogy that I've used recently is that we're, we've put together a map of reality um, and our reality, you know, our experience and what we're interacting with on a daily basis. We have this map that we use to navigate the territory of our lives. Um, but the map is inaccurate. It's a very poor map, and it's it's missing all kinds of features, and it even has stuff on, on there that doesn't correspond with anything that's actually there on the territory. Who knows, you know, just how flawed that map is is something that, you know, that very few of us ever discover. But we refer to the map anyway, and to the point that we've become actually so dependent on the map that, we don't even want to take our eyes off it. And there's a sort of loop here because um, if you do look at the territory and refer you know, the map to the territory, then you're going to start to see how, how bad your map is. So then there's a sort of unconscious investment in not looking at the territory and just keeping your eyes on the map, sticking to your interpretation of reality and referring as little as possible to actual reality because otherwise you might actually have to throw out your map so then in this analogy if you'll kind of indulge me I'm trying to try to get back to the subject um, it's like we're walking around this incredible terrain which is existence, reality with the map held up in front of our faces and we can't see reality because the map's right in front of our eyes um, and so we're really experiencing the map, even though we're, we're trying to walk forward, we're trying to navigate the terrain, um, we're not able to because this map is, is in front of our eyes, so we can barely even take a step without bumping into something, let's say. So basically we stay still and then we just end up gazing at the map and imagining that we're exploring this terrain when all we're doing is just, you know, like kids, looking at a globe and imagining they're in Argentina or what have you. So... As I said about the UFO, um, that's like somebody came up in front of us and poked their finger through the map. And suddenly this finger is poking through this hole and we're thinking, what the hell is that? You know, there wasn't that feature on the map and I don't think there's anything like that in my reality. It doesn't, you know, the only function of that, fe of that finger, sort of inverting the old uh, Zen moon finger thing here somewhat, uh, the only function of that finger poking through the map is to let us know that the map is, is useless, that there's a hole in it, that it is a map, that we need to just put the map down and see what's on the other side of that finger. So um, feel free to interrupt me if, if you... No, no, I love this. You're, this is, you're tapping into, you're synchronistically tapping into some stuff that took place in my life in that that I consequently have rearranged my life to uh, avoid that map. Uh, I had an experience 
as I was first starting to look into this subject, I, you know, this is a long story. I'll make it very quick, and I'll put a link to to the uh, essay where I talk about this. I was getting involved in a UFO documentary, and I had convinced uh, someone in my little small town here in rural Idaho that that we should do a documentary and about the UFO abduction phenomenon. He had worked in Hollywood, and he was a producer, and he looked at me like I was insane, and I kept unneedling him and pressuring him, and finally he said yes. And then uh, very early on in the production, you know, the thought was to interview UFO abductees and treat them very seriously. And early on in the production, uh, he kind of said, you know, we need like a personal journey. We need a story. And then in an offhand way, I said, oh, you know, I had a missing time event uh, when I was 12 years old. And he said, really? And I said, oh, and I saw a UFO about the same time, clear in the nighttime sky. It's like, really? And then, and then I said, oh, and I saw five gray aliens standing in my yard uh, in 1992. And he looked at me and I, and the way I've described it, he, I just felt like he was the drooling hyena and I was the wounded gazelle on the, uh, on the plains of Africa. And, uh, he was basically, we found our journey. We're going to do this story. You're going to be the story. And, uh, my initial response was no way. Um, actually that's not, that's not accurate. I think my initial response was no fucking way, but I, uh, he said, I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to get back to you in this. About three weeks later, we hadn't talked at all. I had been mulling over this, whether do I talk in front of the camera about my experiences, which I don't quite know what they Mm. mean. And I had a dream, and it was incredibly vivid and hyper real. And I was in a classroom, and the teacher handed out a book. And the book was a guidebook to South America. And it was very interesting that he said Argentina. And when you mentioned, you know, peeking through the map and pretending you're in Argentina, and the... the, uh, the teacher said, um, okay, here's a book about South America. It's a tourist guidebook. There's maps in here. There's stories. There's tourist attractions that are listed here. I want you to write about an adventure that takes place, and I want you to use this book as a reference. And I stood up, and I made this kind of, you know, William Shatner-esque speech to the whole class. I was, you know, infuriated and emotional, and I said, you cannot have a Uh, an adventure from a book you can't have an adventure from a map you have to throw the map away and i and i was you know overly dramatic and i stormed out of the classroom this is when you were young no this would have been in 2006 oh okay so sorry okay yeah that would have been this would have been in 2006 uh so this was while i was waiting to talk to the producer Mm. so um i woke up um a few more things happened in the dream but i woke up and uh I knew. Oh right, it was a dream. That was right. so. But in the dream, were you young? No, in the dream I was adult, and it was kind of oh. funny. So there I was, like this, you know, bald, you know, forty-seven-year-old in a classroom full of junior high school students. So, uh, yeah, so I was being myself, you know, ever okay. you know, in present day. So jump ahead, you know, like I immediately, bling, I wake up after this dream. The, all the metaphors are completely transparent. I realize this is about the documentary. This is right. about like abandoning myself to this thing. Like what adventure is worth having unless you, you know, are prepared to leap off the cliff. You know, I at that point had not looked into any of these experiences. I was full of doubts. At the time I was dismissing the reality of these experiences. So I sleep in a little loft. I climbed down the stairs. I got to the bottom of the stairs, you know, minutes after having the dream. As I, as my foot touched the floor of my cabin, uh, the phone rang and the phone is right next to the stairs. I picked up the phone and it was the producer. And he basically uh, said, he's from New York, so he didn't beat around the bush. He said, I'm tired of waiting. What's it going to be? Yes or no? And I said, yes. And for about the next year, we worked on this documentary off and on, 
uh, nothing full time, traveled, and I was hypnotized by Bud Hopkins and uh, Leo Sprinkle, and I met Dave Jacobs, and and uh, you wow. know, we, yeah. I interviewed some abductees as part of the the process too, and then the project just fell apart, and and uh, oh. and oh. it has remains unfinished. So there's like 80 hours of what I consider pretty good footage, and at this point, I feel How like I've that? Well, it's kind of like you had your cake and eat it then, perhaps, because that was the lure, the carrot that got you into that reality tunnel that you perhaps needed to get into, and you met all these people, and then you you took that crucial step, but you didn't ever have to actually go out there on record as this guy. Of course, you have in your own way. <laughs> I'm doing it, doing it now with way. my real name right. on a blog, and yeah. So but at least you've done it in your own way rather than doing it in the context of this other person's project. Perhaps that's that's an important distinction. And the, the project wasn't exploitative at all. And I felt like I was, you know, being treated respectfully and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to look like a fool. Um, I feel confident of that. So, um, which is a very big concern to anyone who steps in front of a camera on a UFO documentary, believe me. Um, right. So anyway, that was a long story just to, to – well, you were just going on and on about the map pressed against your face. I was going on and on. I know. No, no. It was, great. it was great, and I was drinking it in because it was like, man, you are talking right to the, this hidden part of my psyche that only emerged in a vivid dream. And yeah. then you also referenced like Argentina, which I thought was very funny. You were choosing these South American countries to, to make your, your and point I wondered, map. I, I saw Argentina in, on my view screen, Terminator view screen, and I thought, why Why am I going to stay Argentina here? Well, I'll just and say you're, And I was sending you psychic waves, you know, that were yeah. traveling through the newosphere, you know, as I was envisioning my own William Shatner speech, you know, like standing behind a, you know, a little kid's table that was too small for me, so, yeah. There you go. Well, and the funny thing is, is, my metaphor was actually, I was actually trying to lead up to another metaphor, and I, ha- I even have these notes and everything, because I went for a walk before our chat and I ended up thinking about the whole UFO thing and I did I did have some new thoughts about it but um, hence I have these notes and everything so I was actually trying to get back to them but I ended up with a whole different metaphor so there you have it oh so so what were your notes saying well um, seeing as you have so generously asked I'll I'll uh, I'll see. I like, you know, I like to be as organic and spontaneous as possible, but at the same time, I felt like it's an opportunity to, to maybe get to something new. Then, then I like to do that too. Um, so the metaphor that I came up with when I was walking, and this relates, it's similar to the map, but it's kind of more specific, getting closer to the psychology of it. Um, and we've touched on this. How it, it relates to how. In the, even though we're in the present, we can only really experience what's happening now in terms of the past. And, uh, and that's the map, of course, that, that whole interpretation system that we have based on past experiences and specifically those very early formative experiences, births and on for the first couple of years, let's say, certainly the first seven years, but I think even the first two years are, are really what lay down this, this map, you know, uh, and that's our identity. The, the identity is the map. So, uh, thinking the Terminator again, it's the program. Uh, so, you know, when the Terminator has has to make a choice, you've seen the movie, right? Oh, Somebody yeah, much tries so. to get on the phone or whatever it is, and he looks in his visor and it says, I'm busy now, uh, come back later, or fuck you, asshole. Or so, and then he zeroes in on fuck you, asshole, and then he says, fuck you, asshole. So, 
so that's that's kind of what it's like. It's like we have we just have these options that are laid down very early on in our programming and in our conditioning, and in any given situation, we refer to those options rather than actually responding, you know, in a spontaneous way to what's happening. So I thought of this example, like very mundane example. Uh, say you're looking for apartments to rent and you find this perfect apartment that has all the features and just everything you want. It's got a garden, it's got a terrace, it's spacious, it's clean, it's got all the hi-fi and technology and the, the rate is just brilliant. So you really, you know, you're, you're stoked about this. This is everything you could possibly hope for. Um, but something happens and the whole thing falls through like they ask for a reference from your old landlord and he gives you a bad reference and next thing you know the, the landlord of the new flat says sorry you know we've, we've, rent, we've rented it so you lose that apartment disaster a few days later a few weeks later you find another apartment and it's okay it's just okay it's got you know basic features and you need an apartment so you rent it but the thing is is you can't forget about that apartment that you lost so Although you found an apartment and it's really just okay, it's fine, um, your whole experience of that apartment that you ended up living in is filtered through the memory of the apartment that you didn't get. So it's a bit of the cup half empty thing. Your cup is just always, is just always aware of what's missing. So that's, I don't know if you can relate to that example. That actually did happen to me. Um, and I didn't ever quite get over it in the sense that Although I accepted I was in this present apartment, not where I am now, this is in London, but uh, I still felt like, you know, it really would have been better if I'd been in that first apartment that I lost. And um, so this is kind of our original experience. Like as, as children, we experienced the loss of the mother, we experienced abandonment by the mother, and that um, hardwires us with this uh, trauma. I mean, you can imagine, like, the trauma of losing a really great apartment uh, as compared to the original trauma of you know uh, being abandoned by the mother and that can happen when you're born like in the hospital most of us probably our generation it happens within the first few minutes of birth that primal uh, abandonment trauma so that creates our program and ever after we're looking for that perfect apartment. We're looking for that to 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 reunite with the lost other, with you know the mother that has abandoned us or that we've been torn away from, and so everything we encounter in life is filtered through uh, that trauma. So it's like we're actually living in this fantasy uh, with these images and these sensations and these sounds and these kind of waking dreams of, of getting back to that lost connection. Uh, and so everything that happens in the present is getting filtered through that movie that's playing in our head. And it's a filter that's so uh, in place, it's so firmly in place and so, um, you know, thick, so, so kind of overwhelming to our consciousness that we don't even see what's i mean nothing really gets through that filter we're just we're just interacting with these fantasy images so that that's kind of a brief summary and this is Freudian what i'm 
describing him as this actually very basic Freudian psychology, um, that the ego is created through trauma and it's basically like a fantasy realm in which we live. The ego is this fantasy realm in which we're trying to make something come out right that didn't come out right, that we can't let go of it. Uh, so everything, you know, all our interactions are actually with fantasy and not with reality. This is, I say, Freudian psychology. Um, but of course it relates to the matrix and, you know, a lot of spiritual ideas that are becoming more and more popular that that we're living in a dream world and that, you know, our ego, our identity prevents us from actually perceiving, much less interacting with reality. Okay, you still with me? Absolutely. All right, so bring it to the UFO then. This is None of this is new to me, of course, but that what was new to me when I was thinking about this today was that, um, and this is kind of ties in with that initial, initial uh, analogy that I gave you on Facebook that came to me about the um, UFO, UFO being a crack of light uh, seen from inside the womb announcing that birth is imminent. Um, I thought of an alternate and sort of balancing uh, atavistic memory that the UFO could be somehow triggering for us, and that is, as a sperm, seeing the ovum. Of course, the ovum is this, I imagine, kind of white glowing sphere, but who knows, it's obviously very dark in there, but for the sperm, it doesn't have eyes, it's seeing in some other unknown form. Uh, the ovum is the promised land, no? That's the opening that it has to get to, and if it can make it there, it's actually going to fuse with the ovum and life will be created. So as, as primordial consciousness, uh, you know, pre-even fetus, pre-womb and pre-birth, um, that would be you know, our uh, peak experience. I mean, that would be the inception of life when we actually are heading towards the ovum. So then the UFO may represent and maybe more than represent in some real sense actually is equivalent to those primordial experiences, that of conception and that of birth. This crack of light, which is the ellipsis, and this orb uh, that is an opening or a doorway that we're being drawn towards. Of course, the, you know, the individual gets abducted, the UFO comes, uh, the individual as a little spermatosa gets taken inside the orb and then has this probably this birth experience of you know being poked and probed and all the rest of it. So, um, there's, again, this is weird overlap then of something that's happening in the present, um, but that is getting filtered through our uh, primary experiences. And what's sort of, What's most challenging about the UFO, and I think why, how, how and why it is uh, inviting us to this evolutionary leap of consciousness, is that it doesn't fit with our program. It doesn't fit with our reality. There's actually no way, unlike, you know, in this analogy I used of the apartment, uh, you could also use that if you meet a girl. Um, well, I just don't want to get too tangled up with comparing the analogies but we all know that if we meet a girl we have all these projections and these fantasies about her or a partner 
and eventually you know reality has to sync up with those otherwise you know it's a bust it doesn't work out so and of course our partner what we project onto our partner is our primary experiences with our mother or our father or both so but with the ufo um and the alien which of course resembles a fetus the gray alien um there's actually nothing that we can project onto that not really um it doesn't have any equivalent you know we so when you when you're confronted with the ufo and or the alien um there's no way to fit it into this interpretation system or find a place on the map that corresponds with us trying to get what we want us trying to realize this fantasy you know that that was sourced in childhood the ufo and the alien is completely unknown uh, it 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 turns our whole reality upside down um it doesn't offer anything except the unknown um so in that sense it's a spanner in the works of of the ego like when as ego consciousness we're confronted with with the other which is what the ufo and the alien is it's the other like embodied in some quasi material form uh we have to find a whole new way to interact with reality because you can't look to the other way the way where you can look to your partner and say give me what i want what are you going to say to a gray alien you know or please be gentle you know or can i ha- can i win a million dollars or you know give me superpowers i mean maybe after time and maybe this is the danger of these experiences is if we flatten them out and somehow make them literal then our ego does get involved but in its um essence the encounter with the other is by definition an encounter with something that's completely unknown that's completely alien and foreign to our interpretation system so it's that finger that's poking through the map that if you're really honest and courageous enough you will recognize for what it is which is uh something that belongs to a totally different reality and that is inviting you if not forcing you to actually put down your map and and have the guts to to see what's on the other side of that finger and i will say that in in one level we do have a context for the ufo and that just comes from our pop culture you know we have uh, you know the x-files and late night television documentaries that that paint a you know a picture of what the ufo abduction phenomena or the ufo contact experience is all about what happens is when you talk to people who claim the first-hand experience of contact or an abduction it doesn't take but three minutes of talking to them until you realize that the the experience is profoundly more Mm -hmm. strange and more multi-layered and more unknowable than that pop culture reference point that we start with so in essence that pop culture's reference point is just as much this artificial map as as you know the the other map you were referring to so you know that that same finger still pokes through the the ufo abduction uh, well yeah it's an attempt to incorporate the finger into the map so then you could say that's not a hole that's not a finger that's you know a 3d feature on the map which is constituting mount zion let's say absolutely and so then you've adjusted your idea of the map and you think that you've actually somehow improved your map but no, there's a hole in your map, and not the only thing to do is throw it away. But if you're in denial of that, as we all are to greater or lesser extent, 
then uh, yeah, and then so then there's an instead of an evolution of consciousness, there's an evolution of culture, and culture is the chrysalis. Culture is what actually keeps us. That's the matrix. That's what actually. Well, it has a double function because the chrysalis, like the womb, allows us to evolve and come of age. But after a certain point, it's a prison and it restricts us. And if we don't actually break through and go towards that crack of light, uh, then we'll suffocate. And I'm not sure. You know, where are we at with the UFO thing? I think Whitley is a good benchmark or acid test for that. My feeling is not to make it about Whitley, but just using him as a, a sort of, you know, a test or a, a measure of that is that Whitley's starting to repeat himself a little bit. Um, it, it, it's, it's kind of trying to extend the paradigm or use these new experiences to expand the paradigm when in fact the paradigm is ending, you know. And, you know, I was saying, what can you get from the UFO? What can you get from the other? Well, nothing. But that, that's actually not true because there's millions of people, well, thousands of people. And I know Whitley even seems to be somewhat uh, propagating this idea who are believing that the UFO and the alien is ushering us into a new level of being. The mothership's going to come. We all jump aboard. Well, not all of us, just the chosen few and those who subscribe, subscribe to our known country. Uh, we jump aboard <laughs> the mothership. And, and we get taken to a whole new planet. And and there, I don't know about Whitley, I know he's done a story about it, so, you know, but uh, you know, as a metaphor, I think it's accurate. But there are people who literally, who believe this to be a literal reality. And that, that to me, uh, that that is just keeping the map. That's just another way to keep the map. Um, but it's becoming more and more dangerous to do so it's like we're getting closer and closer to that abyss the abyss isn't on the map because our you know our map is our defense against the abyss so we're certainly not going to include you know on the ego's sort of interpretation system the fact that the ego is unreal no no you have to leave that little detail out so but we're having to move forward whether we like it or not we're heading towards the abyss and if we don't actually put the map down we're going to go right over the abyss not to be doomy and gloomy and I agree, and I think that oh, how to say this? I mean, it, you know, all of us need to do our part in in our role as humans on this planet. You know, whether that you know, on one level, you could write a letter to your congressman. I feel like that's a little futile. On another level, you could you know recycle your plastic bags. You know, that's a little futile too. I don't know what the, the well, answer is. It's all is. futile, Mike. You see that? I mean, it's all futile except putting down the map. Yes. Except, and that, I mean. I don't know where that begins. It seems that it begins with a, a level of honesty which is actually uh, beyond most people's capacity, I think, for whatever reason. I'm not saying it's not beyond mine. I'm not sure that I've got to this point or not. But the level of honesty where you are willing to admit to yourself in a real way, not just intellectually, that um, we've got it all wrong, you know, our whole... All of our instruments are just giving us faulty information. And of course, that's the ego, that's the identity. And um, You see, because if we're, we're living in this dream world, so if we're trying to change and alter the dream, whether it's writing to our congressman or recycling or, you know, soapboxing about alien others and, and an evolutionary shift, all we're doing is rearranging the elements of the dream so we can stay asleep. 
So it's like, yeah, the, the, the challenge of the, the UFO is the challenge of the other, um, is to go towards the unknown. I mean, to, to move towards the unknown. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer as to how to do that in our daily lives, but I know it doesn't have to do, have very much to do with trying to create a better world or even self-improvement. I think even, you know, spiritual self-improvement can be a trap because we just, yeah, we, we're just trying to make the map look better and tell ourselves, well, our map actually works. Never mind his map. Yeah, he's, he's dumb enough to be following a faulty map, but look at my map. It's got all these add-ons and apps and all the rest of it. And <laughs> Yes, you. This is great. I'm actually the. I did not expect it to this conversation to to go down these avenues. This has been great. Um, I don't have an answer to the to the map thing. I don't have a follow up question because it feels like, in a way, you've taken me to the edge of the precipice, and I'm peering over the edge, and you know that that abandonment is mm. is something. I'm trying to articulate with this blog format and with this uh, audio podcast thing. And, and uh, uh, you know, there's something about the UFO phenomena that, that forces me to wrestle with these grander concepts. And, and that may be its only purpose. Well, I don't think it can't hurt to go go back to, to Jung and, and the psychological model just as I don't know if you've read uh, Flying Sources I have not okay so you, have, you wouldn't even be going back to it you've been going forward I'm familiar to, with it but yeah keep going um, well what did occur to me while you were talking is I was picturing that and of course the Flying Saucer isn't actually spherical it's, it's um, whatever the term is for that or it's the saucer it's an ellipsis it's a saucer, yeah, yeah. You know, eye shaped but what Jung writes about is that it's a, a feminine mandala. You know, the ovum, the yoni, the opening, uh, the sphere, all of these are feminine symbols as opposed to the phallus and the cross and the sword and etc. So it may be that the essence of the UFO is um, like a core uh, of attention or call to attention to the feminine um, the lost feminine which of course is the mother uh, that for sense of abandonment we feel abandoned as a species on this planet like we've gone and destroyed our own planet and now we don't know where to go we want the mothership to come and take us into its womb and carry us to a new life to be reborn in you know some Christian stroke E.T. fantasy heaven, a new planet, just the chosen few. Um, yeah, it's 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 something that is trying to happen within each and every one of us. It's not going to happen to the species except by happening to us as individuals. I'm sure of that. And so, does yeah, the, the other, and I don't know for our female listeners... I'm not sure how this works. I'm still a bit of a a novice in this whole area, but for you and I as guys, like to reconnect to the other, to discover and confront and interact with the other is is our you know our feminine 
is our feminine side. And of course, that's that sense of abandonment, that hole that's at the center of our being, which is also a, you know, it's a sort of similar, similar to the UFO, that opening, that emptiness within us. I feel like I'm getting very deep here, but that's also, um, that, that, that's how we reconnect to our feminine, to our feminine sides. So, you know, all it could, it's, I feel like I brought it down to a very, it's almost like a non-existent point here. Like I lost, lost my thread because what can you say about an emptiness? What can you say about an opening? It's what's on the other side that counts. Um, and so all of the UFO stuff is very much the finger. Not, the, well, not just the finger pointing through the map, but the finger pointing at the moon, which is the mother. <laughs> so... We're, you know, as UFO guys, and I'm less so than yourself, and I haven't talked about UFOs apart from with Doug Lane for, for years, really, but um, we, the dangers and the, the overriding tendency is, is we, we just spend endless time discussing the finger. What an amazing finger, and isn't it intricate? And, wow, I look at the fingernail, and I wonder, you know, what kind of patterns there are on the fingerprint. And, but no, it's the moon. No, no. It's the moon over there, you know, the finger, the UFO is getting so frustrated with us because the only way to experience the UFO is to pass through it to the other side. It's not, it doesn't actually exist in this reality. It's, it's an aperture that is drawing us into a new reality. So, and that's I love too. If we get stuck on the other person, it's like... We're not passing through the opening now. We're trying to hold on to the door and get attached to the experience of the other person when real communion, use that word, uh, entails actually passing through the other person, uh, you know, all the way through into a new state of being. That's communion, I think. And that, that is terrifying because it's, it's, it's like birth. It's a loss of one reality in order to enter into a new reality in which well, communion um, entails being absorbed into a greater body, doesn't it? Yes, and it, in the act of communion means both of you are changed. You know, you mm-hmm. as well as the uh, UFO phenomena that you're communing with both end up changing, if I understand the defini- definition of communion correctly, uh, once, right. once the transference takes place. Right, and the uh, the Catholic host is a, is a is a white sphere as well, a white circle too. And it is supposed to represent the literal body of of Christ. Christ. So you're you know you're the vesica pieces is the the UFO is that that shape, and that's the vagina also. So that's why Christ has a vagina, <laughs> as it were, the opening in his side. Ah, yeah, and and uh, I mean he's a very feminine character too. You know, just as far as you know love thy neighbor and and turn the other cheek and things like that you know this is you know the orthodoxy of of then as well as now is so male dominated you know well we we really have covered a lot of bases there yeah hey how are you doing we've been at it for a little over an hour and 45 minutes um yeah it seems like uh, a good place to end and begin something new doesn't it pass through that opening and I'm glad we had this conversation, and because and, I said this before, I was uh, intimidated 
I was worried I wouldn't be able to keep up with you uh, and your thoughts, which is why I do like your um, podcast series that has now ended, but I will put a link to that. Are you doing anything now um, as far as... No, as far no as, I'm, uh, I'm totally not doing anything. I'm, you know, um, as a blog? Don't you have a blog? Well, yeah, I still have a blog. You could link to the blog. So I'm not doing nothing, but in terms of actual new projects or ongoing creative stuff, I'm... I'm I'm in gestation period or something. Fair enough, and that's in during that gestation period, whatever. It's you have to drink stuff in, and and then hopefully down the road you'll be able to reap the benefits and pour it out. So. Well, because I can't trust my map anymore, so I'm 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 reluctant to take any steps at all. That's yeah, that's a good way to describe where I'm at. I don't know if it's gestating. I hope it is, but I don't actually know. You'll find out soon enough. Yeah, and then um, you'll find out too, probably. Good. If that essay gets posted on Reality Sandwich, I will uh, link it there. Okay. And then I will also link to your uh, podcast series, which which I, you know, still go back to again and again and again. It's um, still up there. Yeah, I was going to take it all down. Oh, but don't, don't. It's great. It's great. You're you're you're, you know, attacking these subjects with a very thoughtful mindset, and and uh, that's very rare in these in these circles. So. Great. Well, I'm glad you invited me on. Good. At one point, I would love to. Um, I plan on reading the Secret Life of Movies, and I will. I will figure out a way to drag you back on, and we can talk about the film lore. We could do that. I also thought we could talk about the key one time if you felt like it, because it's definitely a book that fascinates me. Also, so could consider that. Also, we could blend the two together. Yeah. So I mean, and I will say once again that I was impressed uh, reading this essay. I was deeply impressed at your introspective thoughtfulness which which i think represents most everything i've ever read or listened to of yours you are very thoughtful and and i, I can think of no other word to describe the, the way you approach these subjects well i'm trying to find things out about myself when i write and so i, I try to let that inform the actual writing process and then the finished project product so yeah it's an exploration rather than an attempt to to communicate or propagate something if you see what i mean that's quite a difference there's quite a difference and it comes across as being very heartfelt because of that and and because of that i just i I, the reader was capable of uh, being dragged in just that much deeper and good well it's, it's good to know it's good to hear Good. I will, I will keep you updated, and uh, thank you so much. And yeah. it's nice to, it's interesting to be talking all the way down in, uh, even though we're in the same time zone right now, you're down in South America. Down in, in Guatemala, yeah. yeah. I'll be up north in northern Europe pretty soon. Uh, so, on the move. But yeah. Until we I talk hope. about movies, I will, um, I, I'll, I'll have this posted in a few days. And, oh, that um, soon, huh? Sure, well, it send take me send a line to your friend Whitley, and uh, hopefully he'll give a listen and decide that I'm not such a bad cat after all. Okay, fair enough. I respect your work greatly, and I respect Whitley's work greatly. So, well, it's always good to open and extend dialogues. I think, good. particularly where there's conflict of you know, perspective. Thanks, mate. Bye now. Bye. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in um, at the end here. Uh, one of the things we didn't cover much is any sort of bio of of Jason. 
and I have followed his story on and off over the years. And this biography, his personal story, is quite complicated and at the same time quite inspiring. Um, perhaps there will be another show where I can uh, dig a little bit more into that if I speak to him. He suggested that uh, the next time we speak on the air, we can talk about The Key, which is a book I'm very intimate with. I would love to dig into that. And that that little book has uh, brought me a wealth of insights into the subtle realms as well as into the, I don't know how else to say it, the grand structure of reality. Um, And I would also like to follow up someday and do an interview where we talk about his book. Uh, I just spoke about it at the beginning. The title of the book is The Secret Life of Movies, and the subtitle is Schizophrenic and Shamanic Journeys in American Cinema. And that is not under his pseudonym. That is under his given name, Jason Horsley. If you made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. Greetings out there to my fellow holograms and welcome to another edition of Stormy Weather, news from the front line in the end times, with myself, Aeolus Kephas, and Kerry McCoy. Hi Kerry, welcome to Stormy Weather. So what are you planning to hit me with today? I've, I've read the...